So the big question, why didn't Sony create the iPod? They had everything that Apple had. The reason why they didn't is because they had all of these different segmentation strategies and they thought that they had different customers. When in fact, the real focus was on getting the job done around mm, portable music. And Apple understood that job to be done. Hello, my name is Lauren D'Souza, and you're listening to Retain, the Customer Retention Podcast. More and more companies are wanting to focus on retaining customers, but what exactly are the powers of customer retention? And how are companies using it to keep their customers coming back for more? That's what we're here to find out. Joining us on Retain today is Dave Norton. Dave is a customer experience expert and the founder of Stone Mentel, a consultancy focused on experience strategy and design. For the last 20 years, Dave has helped companies like Royal Caribbean, Marriott, U.S. Bank, and Best Buy set new standards for customer experience strategies. Dave, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. Awesome. I am so excited for today. Actually, even just that intro itself got me excited because you work with some awesome brands. You have so much experience. So I'm really excited about our conversation today. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) I can't wait. I know. Sounds good. All right. Well, why don't we get started? I always like to set the context of these episodes and just get to know a little bit more about you. Obviously, we've done our research, but hearing it from first person is always better. So maybe we can start off by knowing a little bit more about your background and just what got you into the whole customer experience world. So I was working back in the late 90s for a design firm that was focused on graphic design. And we landed a big project with Royal Caribbean at the time. And within a short period of time, they moved from asking us questions about visual design to questions about private islands and how to think about private islands and how to think about onboard ship activities. And about the time that they started asking us questions around those topic areas, the book, The Experience Economy, came out. Joe Pine happened to live in the same town that I lived in, in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. And so I reached out to him and asked him if he would work with me on a couple of projects. And that's kind of how I got introduced to experience strategy is through Joe. And it just kind of evolved from there. That's really cool. And so I'm curious to know, because I also know you have an interesting past with both experiences and your education as well. So how did your degree in rhetoric help you in your journey in customer experience? Yeah, yeah, that's kind of funny. I was an English major in college. I got a master's degree in rhetoric and I went to the University of Minnesota with the intent of studying rhetoric and going back to my alma mater and teaching basically writing classes. And then this weird thing happened. My wife cut her thumb and she needed plastic surgery for her thumb. And all of a sudden, all of our savings was gone. Oh, no. Because we didn't have any insurance at the time. And so that's when I took a full-time job and kind of put the PhD on the back burner a little bit. And the full-time job was with this design firm called Yamamoto Moss. And I loved what I was doing there. And I just kind of made a pivot. My interest in rhetoric had always been around context. 
Okay. So I wanted to understand how audiences and context understand things, what context does to make situations different. And so that's where my study was. And when Joe introduced me to the idea of experience strategy, I thought, wow, there's a real connection here between the context that the individual finds themselves in and the experience that the company should be designing for. And so that was kind of my next step. And that led to additional insights and just kind of went from there. That is so interesting. I think that's one of the most unique perspectives I've heard on the background getting into customer experience and strategy, because it's a really interesting way that you put that about the context that an individual finds himself in, because really every single conversation we have about customer experience, customer happiness, customer retention, that main world is always the customer. And it's always about the individual's experience and their motivations and their actions. So I really, really like that and probably puts a very interesting spin on the work that you do, I'm sure. And so how did this all come together for you to form Stone Mantel? I worked for the design firm until 2005 and started my own firm, just focused on experience strategy. So the design firm really wanted to get back to its roots of graphic design. And I really wanted to continue to pursue experience strategy and experience research and experience design. I went ahead and started my own group. By then, I had a number of clients that were very focused on experience. And so I was able to kind of buy those clients from my former employer. So I had that. And then I knew that I wanted to develop my own methodology. One of the things that I'd gotten really interested in in my PhD work was qualitative methodologies. And so I developed a methodology for evaluating experiences, for doing primary research on experiences, and that became the basis. And to this day, we still basically use the same techniques that I developed almost 20 years ago. That's awesome. Yeah, they work really well. And we worked with a lot of different companies over the years. That was kind of the next step. I had this point of view around context and I had a methodology that I had developed and I had a few clients. Pretty good setup. (laughs) That sounds like a good foundation, especially the client aspect. You've got a good head start there. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That's really cool. And speaking of interesting experiences, I want to kind of dive in more to the whole experience that you had with the Royal Caribbean, because I know... Obviously, that must have, A, been a really fun and interesting project that you had worked on for quite a while. But I want to know a little bit more about your initiatives when you were working on that project or working with Royal Caribbean. And how did that set the standard for cruise ship entertainment operations today? How did that kind of shape the industry that the cruise ship industry is today? Yeah, sure. I mean, as a young Just getting my career started, researcher at the time, I couldn't have asked for a greater opportunity than to work on um, Royal Caribbean from an experience. Your job is to have fun or to to make other people have fun. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what I was trying to do. So they came to us originally to help them redesign their brochures. They had this cool new thing called an e-commerce website. (laughs) (laughs) And they didn't know whether they needed all the content that they originally had in their brochures. 
So we redesigned those. And the way that we did it was we used some simple kind of basic prototyping techniques and build your own type techniques, which were radically new for them at the time. And that went so well and led to some really cool innovations for them that they then asked us to help them to think about their private island experience. So I did primary research on their private islands. That's so cool. Right? Did kind of the classic ethnographic type of technique. That's where I hired Joe Pine to be a part of the work and give me his thoughts and insights. And the private island work went really well. But the interesting thing about designing private islands is it can take eight to 10 years. (laughs) (laughs) It can take a long time from the time that you have the insight to when the design is completed. There was a little bit of a meltdown, I think, that impacted things from an economic standpoint. I, I can't remember what it was. But... Eventually, the things that you see on Coco Cay and on their Labadee Island, we helped to influence. Now, there were other groups that were involved, but we really helped to influence that design. So then the next project that we worked on was to help them rethink their youth and children program. And that was fun. We got to work with youth. We created games for the kids to play. That taught us what they were looking for from an experience standpoint, and then helped them redesign that program. And then the last really major thing that we worked on was redesigning all of the onboard activities. And you think to yourself, how do you even do that? Because you can't like write a little book that says you must always do this. That would be the wrong approach. (laughs) So we actually took some work that I had been doing around what causes customers to be happy in different types of experiences. And we applied that framework to all of the different activities that they were designing. And then we did primary research in different countries to try to understand what Europeans wanted from their activities, what South Americans wanted, and so forth. And such a fun experience with a lot of variables yeah. to attention to. Again, when you work on that kind of an insight, that kind of work, it can take up to eight years before there's a complete redesign. So the activities themselves got redesigned, but it took another like seven years before they were building ships that supported those types of activities. When you put it on that time span, that just is mind blowing to me, to be honest. (laughs) I know because we think in three month increments, especially literally when we're focused on software or something along that line. But I learned a tremendous amount just from having that opportunity. And I'll always be grateful to the Royal Caribbean for their vote of confidence in our work. We help them with their retail, onboard their ships, and they have some of the biggest ships in the world. Their ships are massive. So there's lots and lots of opportunities for place-based research and observation work, just an amazing opportunity. We haven't worked with them for a few years now. We've done work in other categories and other travel type categories. But yeah, I just felt like I got to use everything that I'd ever Yeah, studied. that sounds like a wealth <laughs> of experience that you gained from that. What would you say was one of the most impactful things that you learned or one of the best things that you learned in that experience, which might be hard to distill into one based on all the experiences you had. But I'm curious to know, what was your favorite aspect of all of this? One of the things that we did a lot of back then that I worry that companies don't do a lot of right now is developing a strong point of view on what customers are going to want 
in their experience going forward. There's a tendency for CX people, and especially when we're talking about retention, and we think, oh, how do we retain people? Well, we retain people by making sure that we have a consistent experience and they're pleased and we handle their problems very quickly. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about we have this insight. People, and Royal Caribbean was great at this, people are going to want bigger and bigger ships is part of the insight that Royal Caribbean had. And we can build a business model around these massive ships. And here's what they are going to want in the near future from their onboard activities. It's not going to look like what we have done in the past. It's going to look like something different. And I think Royal Caribbean did a great job of that. I think there's a lot of companies back then that were really focused on establishing a point of view for what the future of the experience should look like. And I hope that that's not a lost art. I hope that companies are still doing that kind of work. We certainly do it at Stone Mantle. And I feel like something like that is not so easy to figure out, but it sounds like a lot of your work is rooted in research and doing that actual primary field research when you're learning all these insights. because. I also assume that it's different from one brand to the next. And it's really understanding, again, coming all the way back to your degree, it's coming on understanding the whole context of why that individual is there, what context they're in. So yeah. that's really, really interesting. And so shifting gears a little bit, I was learning just a little bit more about some of the topics that you talk about. And one that I found really interesting that I would love to know more about and kind of just deep dive into is the concept of time well spent time well invested, and time well saved. So what are those three topics to you? And maybe we can dive a little bit into it. Sure. Many years ago, Joe Pine, the author of The Experience Economy, and I were having a debate about what is at the core of experiences? What should companies be focused on principally? And I proposed to him that at the core any company should be focused on time well spent. And we were trying to delineate between conveniences and an experience where somebody walked away and said, wow, that felt really good. That's a really good thing. So he took that insight and he took it a step further. And he said, well, I think there's a variation on that. And that's time well saved, where you still have that feeling that felt really good. But the reason why you have that feeling is because things aligned in the right way. You didn't have to spend time on things that you didn't really want to spend time on. And then he also added in this idea of time well invested, which is you come to the experience and you're actively involved in the experience because if you do the experience right in the future, it's going to have a payoff for you. Right. So those are kind of the three versions. Time well spent where you're in the experience, the experience is so engaging that at the end of it, it feels like time well spent. Time well saved where you want those specific activities to happen, either be automated or somehow eliminated so that you can accomplish what you're trying to accomplish. And then time well invested where it feels like you are there, kind of like when you go to school, to learn <laughs> stuff that will help you in the future. We often conflate the three categories into time well spent, just to make it simple. Why I'm so interested in time well spent as a concept 
is because consumers, people's, humans' lives are incredibly busy, chaotic, and overbooked. And companies who don't find ways to make their experience such that people want to spend time with them are frankly going to get eliminated. You need your customer to want to spend at least some time with you or you find yourself no longer in business. And when we do find time to spend with you, we need to know what that looks like. So what are you as a customer looking to get out of that time? And that has led to some interesting research that we've done around what makes things meaningful for people in different types of situations in different contexts. And I'm just convinced that at the end of the day, companies would be far better off if they focused on the time value that they create for customers rather than their customers' loyalty. Honestly, I really like the perspective. So I'm curious from your point of view, and I'm sure you've seen this with your clients, with your firm, but let's say a company comes in and they say, okay, we need to figure out how to fix our retention strategy or how we get these numbers up or how do we work on this? What kind of things do you look out for so that they can focus towards more of this time well invested, time well spent and time well saved? Because I feel like it's such a simple framework, but can be hard to kind of approach to figure out where to start. So maybe some advice on what you would look out for, some driving factors of that, or some questions companies would be asking themselves when trying to figure out how to be one of those buckets for customers. Yeah. So retention and loyalty, I would argue, is a byproduct of a great experience. Oftentimes, we have a tendency to focus on the byproduct rather than measuring the experience itself and making that experience better. We've identified three things that go into whether or not an experience is for a customer time was spent or invested or saved. And that is, did you get the job done for them? Did they actually engage? And how did they actually engage with the experience? And did they feel like it was value for their time? So those are kind of the three elements. And when we talk about the job to get done, we're not always focused on functional things like, did you help them to move money from one bank to another? But they can be emotional things. They can be social things. Venmo, for example, is very much about the social job to get done. The functional job too, right? Yeah. So there's functional, emotional, social, aspirational jobs to get done. And we've identified a category we call systemic jobs to get done as well. But you need to know what the job is and you need to be able to get that job done. The second thing that you need to be able to do is to engage the customer. And engagement means different things to different situations. So some companies, a question like how enjoyable was the experience works because it's all about enjoyability. If I'm going on a Royal Caribbean cruise, how enjoyable was the experience does tell me something about the engagement. It doesn't work so well in healthcare. You know, you're not... (laughs) So you might say something like, how much do you trust the doctors and physicians? That's still an engagement type question. You want to understand what kind of engagement you're creating and whether they're actually engaged with that specific moment. 
When it comes to time value, what you're really trying to understand there is, was the experience worth the time that the customer paid in order to do it? And if it's not, then it could be a channel issue that you're dealing with where they really did not want to go to the store. They really just wanted to do it online. And so they're more interested in time well saved. They felt like online would have been better then they are interested in time well spent where you're actually going into the store and engaging with people with retailers and enjoying the products on the shelf and so forth. So what you can do with those three elements is you can begin to measure things that really matter to the customer. And then you can build your performance. And when you do that, your loyalty scores will go up because it's a byproduct of your ability to do those three things. Yeah, I like the way you put that too. Because I think it also makes it easier to decide. For example, everyone listening on this podcast, they might be thinking to themselves if they're running a Shopify store or running a business of some sort or part of a business, they must be thinking to themselves, which I know I was, of what's the key metric or the thing that I can measure as a result under the one of those three buckets. So I like the way you put it because it makes it much more actionable, much more simple to figure out much easier to break down to smaller bits. But I'm also curious, do you have an example, maybe of a brand that you're a consumer of, or maybe a brand that you've worked with or something like that, but an example of a company that has done one of those three buckets really, really well? We work with a lot of companies and we always focus on the job to be done and engagement and time value. One of our clients is Clayton Homes, which is a Berkshire Hathaway company that focuses on modular home building. If you wanted a home where they build it in a manufactured kind of plant area and then they drive it to the location and plop it on the foundation, that's the type of work that they do. They're doing some great work. When it comes to time well spent, helping people through the decision-making process, thinking through things. Another company that I think is really focused on this idea is Best Buy. They're also a client of ours and they're doing some great thinking around how to make the retail environments more time well spent, but also the technology in the home feel more like time well spent. Those are just two examples of companies that we've worked with. I hear, but I'm not currently working with Walmart, that they have changed their focus to be around time well spent, desperately need it, adding additional channels to their online platform and their delivery services has made the in-store experience worse than it was before. Mm-hmm. And so they've got some work to do. Yeah, not true. <laughs> but actually, even thinking another good example is something like Amazon Prime. Where for me, that's time well saved time and time again. Actually, probably more than I need to be saving that time. (laughs) But I was thinking about like the fact of, I actually was just having a conversation with someone earlier about the fact that if an item, let's say, is $9.99 and I get to check out and there's $5 of shipping added, or there's another product, same product, and it's priced at $16.99, I will choose that one with free shipping versus the $9.99 plus $5.99 because Seeing that extra added charges on top feels like I'm paying for something that's not useless. But in my opinion, I don't want to be paying for shipping. I'd rather pay for the product. And so Amazon Prime is a prime example of time well saved because A, it's next day delivery, sometimes even day of if I'm lucky. And even just the convenience aspect, the whole thing, so you don't have to think about it. It's just easy. And so 
it's not about customer design. Like it's not like their user experience is the craziest thing ever, but it's very much about this time well saved aspect, in my opinion, or based on my consumption patterns. And of course, Jeff Bezos got that idea for Amazon Prime from the guys at Costco. That's where he got the idea. He was a big believer and thought that Costco really understood what they were doing. And Costco to this day does a great job. Talk about high scores and retention. They've turned a warehouse into an experience. And a lot of it has to do with how they buy their products and the type of products that they have. But they're really good at setting expectations and exceeding those expectations. And they get the job done. And They get the job done. You know, so there's some great companies out there in retail that are doing some really good things. Yeah, Yeah. no, I definitely agree. And Costco has me going for A, samples, and B, hot dogs. And then I buy everything I don't need after that. (laughs) I've always said that. Costco is my favorite place because you can buy a television and a steak at the same time. So yeah. how can you go wrong if you're a guy? I mean, that's what. <laughs> you can buy the whole party in one go. Right, exactly. You can buy the patio furniture to have your friends over to cook the steak and serve them the steak. <laughs> well, it's better. What could be more like time will invest it, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, that is so true. And speaking of which, kind of one of these patterns that you're talking about within these great examples of companies who have got these buckets figured out or these topics figured out, I think a lot of it and kind of your experience with understanding customers and their relationship to the companies and their experiences is really understanding the customer themselves. And one, I guess, concept or one thing that you learn a lot about, especially in the entrepreneurial world and getting started with new businesses is the idea that when you start a business, you should define some sort of customer persona. And it's the whole idea that this persona helps you decide how to target the customer, how to provide this experience for them, et cetera. But I'm curious to know your point of view on these things, because why do you think that sometimes relying on these personas can create limitations or potentially even stereotypes? And I'm curious to know your approach to this, because you have a very interesting approach rooted in research. So I'm curious to know your thoughts around customer personas and why you probably shouldn't rely solely on something like that. Yeah. So I can't help myself. I think historically personas served a really important purpose back in the day because a lot of companies really saw innovation in a very different way. They were focused on kind of the GE model where you just had to be the biggest in a particular category. You either had to be first or second in the category, and you just wanted to make sure that there were barriers to entry, and you had your SWOT analysis done. And if you did that, you're good. And like whether or not the customer had anything to say in that, well, maybe a little bit, but that wasn't the focus. And what Personas did is they brought the customer into the company and said, this is who we're actually working for. Now, that's great. That was a great thing. But over time, what has happened is persona work and segmentation work have kind of merged. So most companies today, they talk about kind of a segmentation type persona. Originally, that wasn't the case. Segmentation work has been proven to be a major barrier to real innovation. So the big question, and there's an HBR case study on this, but why didn't Sony create the iPod? They had everything that Apple had. In fact, they had the Walkman and so forth. I know that's a long time ago, but the reason why they didn't is because they had all of these different segmentation strategies 
and they thought that they had different customers when in fact the real focus was on getting the job done mm, around portable music and apple understood that job to be done amazon does not have segmentation they want anybody who's interested to sign up google doesn't segment and say oh you're a female millennial and i'm a gen xer male Therefore, we're going to give you two different search experiences. That's not how it works. If you really want to nicheify your offering, come up with a really sophisticated segmentation strategy and create a persona around that so that you can only serve people that are in that very specific demographic. And I guarantee you, it will kill innovation. We as experienced strategists, we're always trying to look holistically at the overall experience. And so when we do segmentation work and when we do persona work, we oftentimes exclude some of our customers who frankly just want to hire that particular product to do a job for them. And it really has nothing to do with their demographics or their psychographics. So that's a major issue in and of Mm -hmm. itself. The question is, how do we get the person and the empathy associated with the person into the company without turning them into some kind of very narrow, specific segment that won't serve us well and will stifle innovation. One of the things we've been working on in our collaboratives where we do a lot of this primary thinking, it's funny because it's hard to come up with a new name besides persona, but it's a type of persona (laughs) where you're actually looking at a group. You're looking at six or seven people that have common things that they're trying to accomplish or maybe are within a small group. And you're trying to describe what they're trying to accomplish. So it's very much focused on what is the use case and the situation and the context that they find themselves in. And I think that companies could make the shift away from trying to figure out who the target audience is to what is the situation that people find themselves in and still be very empathetic, very customer-focused, and find that lots of people find themselves in that same situation, regardless of their race. You just think about it, and you're just like, that it doesn't make sense. Why would you <laughs> narrow it down to a particular race? I don't get it. So that's kind of the problem with persona work, and I think mm-hmm. it's just to focus on the situation. I really like that. But a lot of great insights that you shared with us. Now, one of the last things that we always do on the show is a quick lightning round. So the lightning round is just three quick questions to get to know more about you and just fun brain teaser questions. And then we'll end on a piece of advice and we'll be on our way. So lightning round question number one, what is the biggest challenge facing companies in customer experience right now, in your opinion? Companies are still so focused on the who. They need to be focused on the what. And I think that with AI and everything else that's going on, We need to move to a focus on what I call situational analytics, where we're studying the situations that people find themselves in more than we're studying the people and their preferences. If you could pitch your customer experience strategies to any company, which one would it be and why? I would love to pitch to Walmart because I'd love to see them come (laughs) out of this pull that they've got around their experience. And I would love to pitch to a social media company. 
Facebook seems to believe that they're going to be about time well spent. I don't see it yet. There's some opportunity there. Who would be your dream guest from the world of marketing to have on your lovely podcast, the Experience Strategy Podcast? <laughs> I don't know from the world of marketing per se, but I would love to have Elon Musk on my nice. podcast. I mean, talk about somebody who gets what we're trying to do. And all politics aside, he's a very successful, capable, experienced thinker, I think. And last but not least, my favorite way to end the whole episode is, is there a piece of marketing or life advice that someone shared with you once that has always stayed with you? I'm going to go back to something I said earlier, and it's kind of like a piece of advice that I got from a group of people and lived experience that I'd maybe like to share with the group, which is always have a point of view. We talked about that earlier. I think there's a lot of people out there today who are kind of talking saneness. And you need to differentiate yourself as an individual by having a strong point of view on how things should change. I love that. Be unique, be yourself. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Well, with that, we'll bring it to a close. Thank you so much, Dave, for joining us on the show today. It was lovely to have you. Thank you. That was so fun. Retain the Customer Retention Podcast is brought to you by Gameball. To find out how you can turn visitors and occasional buyers into loyal, lifetime customers, head to Gameball.co. Make sure to subscribe to Retain the Customer Retention Podcast in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, so you never miss an episode. Thanks for joining me, and I'll see you next time.